Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you have a doppelganger or maybe I should ask, do you believe you have a doppelganger? Now, for most of us, that's come to mean that we think there's someone out there who looks like us. But actually, there's a lot of folk history about believing in doppelgangers. And our next guest has a podcast called Fabulous Folklore. Her name is Icy Cedric, also a folklore writer. Icy, thank you so much for being here. It's my absolute pleasure. So what do you define as a doppelganger? What is that? It's a funny one because so many different cultures have different meanings for what they think a doppelganger is, but it generally seems to be almost like a duplicate of you. So it's where you might encounter yourself or someone might encounter you, but it's not actually you, if that makes sense. It's kind of like someone's photocopied you. Okay, so is it has we come to make it seem like it means, oh, there's somebody out there who looks like us, but it actually has deeper meaning than that from what you're saying. Yeah, because I mean, I think everybody will always come across someone who like legitimately looks like somebody yes. that they know, and you can be like, "Hang on, oh my god, that's that's quite creepy." But I think in this case, it tends to be that if you were to see somebody else's doppelganger, generally the meaning ascribed to that in a lot of folklore is that something's happened to that person, and you've seen them at like a point where they're in peril for whatever that might be. And it doesn't always necessarily have to mean the worst. It can just be that something has happened to them, but then you find out about it later through talking to them. But then if you see your own, it's nearly always believed to be some kind of portent of doom. Although again, not always. So it's one of those things, there's no kind of cut and dried answer as to whether it definitely means something bad or if it's just going to be really, really freaky. (laughs) I'm going with the freaky. So is it, (laughs) is how far back in history does it go? Oh, I mean, you get examples of it right back to legends around Elizabeth I. And you, I suppose really it depends on where you take the records from. Because, I mean, the, there's legends around people actually creating doubles, if that makes sense, through like where the birth of painting and sculpture come from. So I think that there's been an interest in by humans in sort of doppelgangers, whether that's literal doppelgangers or just the shadow or the reflection for absolute centuries. But the folklore itself, there's a lot of it in the 19th century, but that's clearly just because that's when people were actually starting to write this down. So I do think the fact it goes back to at least Elizabeth I does show that there has been an interest in it for at least a good few centuries so far. Do other cultures also have something that means something similar? Oh, absolutely. You find it in places like the Pacific Islands. There's places in South America. Uh, I would hazard a guess probably most cultures have some kind of feeling around whether a doppelganger is a good or a bad omen just because of the fact it's so unusual and you tend to find that if something's out of the ordinary in some way then that's the thing that gets folklore attached to it. So then where what is the history of this then I see so is it that seeing yourself somewhere might be a bad omen I understand like this happened with Abraham Lincoln. Yes, he he apparently had a dream. So his his doppelganger appeared in in a prophetic dream where I think he he dreamed he saw himself like shown twice in a mirror, and one of the reflections was a lot paler than the other. And um, his wife took that to be an indication that something bad was going to happen to him. And of course, obviously, it did. So it it I think these kind of stories, because again, it's something out of the ordinary. You do sort of think how many times do we actually encounter doppelgangers and just not notice, but the times that we do notice it's because something has then happened is obviously, I suppose, the sceptical way of looking at it. But I I think the biggest survey of them that I've come across was Otto Rank wrote a whole book about the double in 1925, and he saw the double appearing in, in folklore before it kind of appears in literature, 
and then it's kind of because it appears in literature it then kind of enters pop culture and like sort of mainstream consciousness at that point hmm. and then it becomes a much more widely not accepted but uh, people are aware of it more now was it something that perhaps was more commonly held or commonly believed like prior to photography becoming really common like maybe back then it was just more rare to see your picture it's certainly possible and i think when you sort of consider that even mirrors would be expensive to a lot of people and obviously there's lots of different cultural ideas um that you get right across the board as well about things like covering your mirror during a funeral um, or like you know when you've got the body sort of like lying um not lying in state, but you know, that kind of, that they've been right, laid the, the out the wake the that they have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, before you take them to the cemetery. And quite a few cultures have a belief, and you even see this in, in sort of like, just quite secular folklore as well, about covering the mirrors so that the person's soul doesn't get trapped in them. So there's this idea that almost the soul then kind of becomes the doppelganger, and you don't want people to kind of, you want, you want them to go wherever it is that they're supposed to go, not get stuck um here so i think it is quite interesting that you do then also get the beliefs that people had around photography almost being this uncanny science as well until i suppose you know people's repeated exposure to it you would eventually accept photography was just you know Mm -hmm. another form of art really Um, but i I, I do think it's quite interesting that you you sort of have this a lot of belief in the doppelganger in the 19th century right around the time when you start having the likes of post-mortem photography and things like that. So, so the meaning has evolved. Yeah, and I think that's the trouble with these things. You try and put your finger on it and say, oh, this is what that is. And then you're like, oh, no, but wait, there's this example where that doesn't quite work. And then, it, yeah, you, eventually you just have to accept the things as they are, really. It, it must be fascinating that you can find something like a doppelganger in the work that you do, I see, and then you can find something similar in cultures all around the world. Yeah, and it does often make you wonder, particularly when you look at the really old records and you think, well, this is probably sort of prior to a lot of contact between these different cultures. So for people to have come to very similar ideas, Mm -hmm. almost independently, you do then wonder if Jung was actually right and there's something in the idea of the collective unconscious or if there's just something in the way that humans process information that we all kind of ultimately came to the same conclusion, albeit without kind of comparing notes, as it were. So it, it, it does always fascinate me. And then you get the slightly like regional versions, which are slightly different because they depend on maybe the, the context or like there's one of the beliefs about um, warriors in, in, in certain sort of territories would try and attack each other sort of when the shadow was at its weakest or like at noon Mm -hmm. because your shadow is an indication of your strength well that wouldn't really work somewhere like the equator so you then have to be in the right part of the world to have a shadow that changes length so it is quite funny how you then get local uh, variations as well so interesting icy thank you for joining us it's absolutely my pleasure That's Icy Sedgwick, folklore writer and host of the Fabulous Folklore podcast, covering some really fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us on this Monday morning to check in with Vaughn Palmer. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. By the way, I finished The Wager on the weekend, that book that we were talking about. So good. I can't wait for the movie. (laughs) <laughs> his, la- his last book is out in a movie this fall. Martin Scorsese directed Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, David Grant, he writes a great narrative, and that one is an incredible yarn. Hard to believe, really, when you read it, but it actually happened. Well, it's hard to believe that he can make um, a mutiny <laughs> on a ship in the British Royal Navy in 1741 so incredibly fascinating that you can't yeah. put the book down, which is what happened. Yeah, No, no, it really is. Uh, incredible what some people can survive (laughs) and there you've got two groups of people who uh, survived admittedly with a very different story but I won't spoil any more than that except to say folks you're looking for a good summer read on something that actually happened check out The Wager oh such a good book okay uh, let's talk about what's going on here in summertime and and opinion polls I guess you know when there's no election what do opinion polls really mean but this one is pretty interesting It is interesting, and I think it also provides a a fascinating scorecard on, uh, well, the anniversary this week 
of the NDP taking power in British Columbia under John Horgan six years ago. I think it would be fair to say that if you went back six years ago, even some New Democrats didn't expect their government was going to survive this long. It was it was clinging just by its fingernails to the edge. The Liberals had actually won the most votes and the most seats, but fell short of a majority by <clears throat> 200 votes in one riding. Folks, if you think your vote doesn't count, remember that. Uh, but the New Democrats take power. John Horgan with a partnership with the Greens. And here we are, another NDP Premier, David Eby. Uh, and I wouldn't say clinging to power. The latest opinion polls show that if an election were called today, and Eby says it isn't being called today, but if an election were called today, the New Democrats would cruise back into power with a good big majority. Uh, the public is still happy with them as a re-election prospect. But, Simi, there is something very strange in the polling. Oh. And we've seen it again and again. The public is not happy with the government's performance on the key issues. And it really is fascinating to see this disconnect between performance on the key issues and re-election prospects. So I gave you the polling number, parties, you know. In one poll, the New Democrats are well ahead of BC United, in both of them, they're well ahead of BC United. But if you ask people what the big issues are, and uh, Angus Reid did do that, uh, so they think uh, the public says, you know, really big issue, uh, cost of living. 15% uh, approval of the government's performance on dealing with the cost of living. Another big issue, Healthcare, access to healthcare, 22% approval. Third issue, housing affordability, 11% of British Columbians think that the New Democrats are doing a good job on that issue. So, Simi, this is one very forgiving BC public. And as somebody who's covered this for well, almost 40 years, uh, I've never seen the public in quite this same mood. We think you're doing a rotten job on the big issues, but we'd still vote for you if the election were called tomorrow. Okay, what does that say about what these polls are saying about the opposition? Well, yeah, I think there's two things. One, I think, you know, to be fair to the government, I think the public recognizes that these issues that are preoccupying us are complicated and don't lend themselves to easy solutions. I mean, David Eby can't do anything about the Bank of Canada raising interest rates. The housing affordability, there's a huge supply issue, can't fix it overnight without a lot of, a lot of help from municipalities. Uh, healthcare waiting lists. Well, you can't just go out and create a whole bunch of doctors and nurses out of thin air, although that's what we need to do. So I think that's part of it, a recognition, fair-mindedness that these problems are gonna take time to to solve. I think the other thing is that for all of the public's disappointment with what's happened so far on these issues after six years, people still don't look at the alternatives, whether it's the Greens or BC United or even the BC Conservatives and say, well, clearly we've got an alternative here that could do a better job. I mean, I think the opposition parties have collectively failed to connect and you see it in the way the vote is split up among them. So BC United, new brand, is way behind, but in second place. In one poll, the Conservatives are in third place. 16% of the vote, they pulled that ahead of the Greens, and then the Greens are there. So a part of the government's good fortune is that its opposition is divided, and when the opposition is divided in that way and the government's ahead, that's a recipe for re-election. So it's like what the public is saying is, we're not entirely happy with the things you're doing, but we get that you're trying to do the right thing. Yep, that's right. I think they're give, being given the benefit of the doubt. And as I said, I mean, you, we, we've, we've covered repeatedly, uh, you know, some people grumble about the lack of media coverage, but we've covered all the public safety downtown, waiting lists in the hospitals. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, housing prices, we cover it, right? And we also, because in the interest of fairness, you go to the government, what are you going to do about it? And they lay out their plans and they say, here's what we're going to do. And we can report that they haven't made much progress yet. I think the public gets that. But you still have a public that's looking for solutions, and they don't see the opposition parties as having the solutions either. 
Okay, so definitely that's one that I guess the government could feel good about, but we know what happens too when people rely, when parties kind of take the polls for granted. Yes, we do. I mean, I've been going back over my coverage of the 2013 election, and if for the listener who hasn't done that recently, you will find that I was really sure, because the NDP were ahead in the polls, we all that were, though, Vaughn. was going to be elected. <laughs> yeah, okay, but you know, if you're going to do me a culpa, don't try to blame anybody else. I look at my own stuff. And uh, Adrian Dix was ahead in every single opinion poll right up to the day the votes were cast. So things can change. So things can change. And the other thing about that 2013 thing that's important, given the way the Conservatives are surging, is the Conservatives were doing really well in 2013 under John Cummins. Remember him. They failed at the finish line. They went nowhere. 4% of the vote. That's right. The B.C. public with encouragement from federal conservatives like Stephen Harper, who was the prime minister then, went with B.C. liberals as the alternative to the NDP. So, yes, election day, October the 19th, 2024, according to David Eby, uh, is still 14 months away or thereabouts, and opinion polls can change overnight. Just ask Adrian Dick. All right, we're back with Vaughn Palmer there because we still have to talk about this whole Surrey policing thing. Yes, the story that just keeps going on and on, but it's sounding very much like what's coming down this week will be definitive. Vaughn. Yeah, you know, Simi, uh, it has gone on a long time, and we've been told, Simi, to expect uh, Mike Farnworth, public safety minister, make an announcement Wednesday morning here in Victoria, tech briefing ahead of time, and then uh, Farnworth announcing a decision on whether or not the provincial government is prepared to approve uh, Surrey's plan to go back to the RCMP. And doubts have been growing that that will happen. The feeling is that the the New Democrats are not going to approve going back to the RCMP, partly because of growing doubts about the future of the RCMP as a provider of local, community, city, and provincial policing services in Canada. And this, this blew up last week at the Premier's conference where the Premiers of the country called on Ottawa, tell us what the future of the RCMP is in this country because we aren't sure you're committed to it. So that was, uh, and the Premier came out, David Eby, and, you know, Eby, Eby doesn't uh, speak uh, outside, uh, you know, doesn't improvise. He's a, he's a pretty methodical, careful guy, and he said, you know, uh, he has doubts that the RCMP is sustainable in Surrey. So that's it now. Anybody wondering about the latest on this debate, check out the front page of the Toronto Star today. So the Toronto Star's bureau chief in Ottawa, uh, Tonda McCharles, quoting sources inside the federal government, says, yes, there is a very active discussion going on inside the federal government and the national leader of the RCMP and the office of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about the future of the RCMP. Simi, a growing consensus that the future of the RCMP in this country is more like a national police force like the FBI in the United States and getting out of the business of providing provincial policing, policing at the local level. Uh, The timing of that piece, I think, is very apt to what we're going to be hearing on Wednesday. If the provincial government has its doubts about the future of the RCMP in the country, and I think they do, because so does the federal government, why would you approve Surrey's plan to go back to the RCMP as provider of policing services in Surrey? You and I touched on this last week. It's about using the bigger picture that perhaps the federal government will kind of help out on this one by saying, yes, it's true. But what I don't understand about this, Vaughn, is that the local Surrey RCMP have clearly been, you know, cooperating with Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke, trying very hard to keep the Surrey RCMP here. There seems to be a disconnect between the local RCMP and what the federal RCMP is working on. I think that's fair comment. Now, uh, the the Star story notes that um, you know the Fed, the previous, the the federal government considered this before. It, this was kind of active discussion 
at the national government going back 10 years or so. And the, the liberals, federal, under a different public safety justice minister, pulled back uh, because of pushback from the provinces. There was a feeling at the provincial level like, you know, we don't really want to do this. Uh, and so they pulled back. Uh, it now looks like it's been reactivated in the wake of a, of a major change, which is that awful case in Nova Scotia. And the federal government in the wake of the Nova Scotia and the findings of the review of what went wrong down there said, we think it's time to sit down with the provinces and talk about the future of the RCMP. And the provinces apparently have been sending in their proposals. So in the long run, uh, if this act discussion continues in the same active direction, what you're probably looking at is what was hinted at last week at the Premier's conference, that the provinces that don't have their own provincial police force, at least the big ones, uh, so Ontario and Quebec already have them, the provinces that don't have their own British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, probably Saskatchewan, are going to be thinking of setting up their own provincial police forces. And they need to get going on that. Yeah. Daniel Smith of Alberta pointed that out. You can't just do it overnight. BC has a proposal for that, too. So that's the, the first thing. Um, but the, the, the timeline, there is a bit of room here. RCMP contracts with the provinces are up in 2032. So you have a few years to get ready for this. But uh, as I said, I think that Toronto Star article today, uh, their sources are very good in the federal government, even though they haven't named them, Yes, are saying, hey, this is the direction, the direction of thought at the federal level. Again, I mean, the BC government's aware of all this stuff, right? They, they probably yeah. engaged in the back rooms on these discussions. So Again, why would they go back to the RCMP in Surrey when the force exactly. may not even have a future? Exactly. Local police force. Exactly what I was thinking. Okay, thank you, Vaughn. Yeah, Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Anyone who has ever played a video game obsessively or had a child who has played a game obsessively has probably asked the question, is video game addiction a problem? Now, when I was a kid, it was a lot of Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. And I'm, I know that our parents asked that question. Our parents did not like that one bit. But more recently, it's something like Fortnite, which has become a cultural phenomenon and the most played video game of all time. But it has also, you know, spawned reports of extreme gaming behaviors, things like, you know, playing during a tornado or refusing to even take a break for the basics, which has once again brought up this question of the addictive nature of some video games. So what does that mean for the people who develop these games? How much responsibility do they have for the impact on mental health and how this works and all the, the logistics around this? Well, Luke Rinaldi is with us now, a national award-winning journalist who has been researching this and writing about this. Luke, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. So is this a problem now more so than we have seen in the past, do you think? Yeah, I think so. You mentioned, you know, growing up with a different type of game. Um, games used to be pretty straightforward. You know, you played them, you beat them, and then you were kind of bored. But now games don't really have an end point. You can kind of keep playing them forever. Um, they're more accessible. They're on our phones. Um, they keep updating with new characters and levels and weapons. And so you can kind of just lose yourself in them. And kids, I think, you know, they see the rise of esports and they say, well, I can make a living doing this. So, you know, mom, keep letting me play. Right. So now the, these games are designed to kind of keep you in the game, to buy things in the game and to essentially never leave the game. Yeah. So how do parents deal with this? Like, what have you heard from parents? Uh, <laughs> well, I've heard from parents who uh, certainly are having a lot hard, really hard time dealing with it. Um, I think, you know, the, the first step is to try to reason with your kid and, and, you know, not outright ban video games because there's plenty of things that are good about video games. Um, but at a certain point when your, you know, son is not going to the washroom because he can't pry himself from his controller, um, things, you know, need to get a little bit more strict. And so I've spoken to parents who have 
um, you know, taken away their kids' consoles, um, who have sort of forced them to go outside, who have turned off the Wi-Fi. Um, and, you know, some of those things are successful, but uh, when these kinds of games are so um, ubiquitous and, and playable on a smartphone, it is really hard to limit uh, a child's access to them. Um, and so that's why I think parents are struggling because their kids really have a means to play the game no matter what they do. And how are video game developers responding to this, if they are at all? Yeah, I think um, video game developers have historically said, you know, we're making a product. We're making something that's fun, um, that's pretty innocent. Um, and like most things, uh, or like many things, it can be misused. And so developers have said the responsibility to make sure that a kid doesn't get addicted or, or plays with healthy habits um, that responsibility should fall to parents. And so they've sort of, you know, shirked off this, this responsibility and said, this should be up to players. This should be up to parents. We're just making a product and, and we can't be held responsible. And, you know, I think to some extent that's a fair line of reasoning, but I also think that it doesn't really need to be that black and white. I think parents do have a responsibility, but developers should as well. It's hard, I guess, when you can't really define what healthy habit means. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. I think for some players, playing for uh, you know a full day um, can be healthy. I, I, that might sound sort of <laughs> sort of nuts, but if a, a player has a well balanced life and they say, "Okay, I've set a, set aside my Saturday to to play video games," and they go for it, and it doesn't really impact the rest of their life, that's fine. And so it's hard to uh, draw a line and say, "Okay, this is where." Um, video games has really ventured into dangerous territory, a, a possible addiction, as opposed to, you know, a, a relatively healthy or, or at least benign pastime. So is there concern, though, that we're heading into stuff that may be even more challenging to control, like with AI and virtual reality? Are these games going to become even more addictive? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think AI has been sort of a part of video games for a long time in sort of rudimentary forms. Um, you know, the way that computer players have been controlled, they need to sort of be um, AI to a certain extent. And as that technology gets more advanced, um, we're going to see games that, that really target um, individual players' preferences and understand what it is that keeps them coming back to the game. And it'll simply keep pushing those things towards a player so that it makes it even harder. Um, and I think, you know, that can be applied to things like virtual reality, which, you know, by design is, is more immersive than simply sitting on a couch and playing with your controller. So I think games have, have advanced quite a lot already over the last several, you know, years and, and even decades. And they're, they're only going to get more uh, advanced. So I think, now is the time to to really look at at what can be done to make sure that um, you know we're not we're not leaving kids on their own to to fight these addictions. Is there any government or any kind of regulation, Luke, that you've seen or heard of that works here? Yeah, I think there are some some governments around the world that are doing relatively simple and sensible things. Um, the UK has used some public funding to to form gaming addiction clinics, um, which I think can be helpful. Um, in South Korea, where there's a, a quite a massive culture of gaming, um, they have uh, rules that allow parents to sort of dictate uh, what hours their kids can play video games. And then there are a number of countries around the world that have specifically targeted um, things within video games that are called loot boxes, which are sort of like you can pay $5 of real-world money and get some in-game bonuses or unlockables and uh, they, they work in a sort of slot machine fashion where you don't know what you're going to get. And so um, a lot of countries have approached that as, as you know, gambling available to, to children. And so they've cracked down on that and said either these are banned or we need to put some regulations on them. Um, and so other countries have been doing things, but Canada, not so much. Hmm. Well, thanks for the chat this morning. 
My pleasure. That is Luke Rinaldi, a national award-winning journalist who has been writing about video games, uh, the the challenge for parents, anybody who's ever tried to control the amount of time uh, they spend on a video game, and they're just becoming more and more addictive. Now, I would love to hear from parents out there if this has been a challenge for you and how you have tackled it. Uh, it's It's about limits, right? But for a lot of parents, that could be so challenging to do that. This is Mornings with Simi can't really help but notice how the weather is a huge story right now all over the world, right? Europe is seeing its hottest, hottest uh, heat wave that it's ever had. You've got unprecedented summer flooding on the east coast of the United States. You've got record high temperatures in, you know, California. And we know that this has been the hottest week on record that we have seen around the planet, right? That happened from July 3rd to July 10th. So temperatures all around the world are just getting, it feels like, higher. And meteorologists say we need to get used to this. Now you've got these wildfires too, another huge situation for us too. It doesn't seem like we're really doing a good job of adapting so far. So is it time for us to look into the past for answers? Well, our producer Bianca Rego spoke with Catherine Palmer Gordon, the author of a book called This Place is Who We Are, to find out. This Place is Who We Are is a book I decided to write about five or six years ago because the Work I had been doing and working with Indigenous peoples, both in British Columbia and New Zealand, that's the accent that you can hear, uh, had given me the opportunity to see how incredible ways of Indigenous stewardship and taking care of land, water, community, individual humans uh, is. And there are stories that I want to share with the world. So this place is who we are. The, the broad theme of it is about that interconnection of people, place, and well-being in the context of some of the stories of the indigenous peoples living in the in coastal central and northern BC, the area that we often think of as the Great Bear Rainforest, and all telling their stories in different way around that theme of how we are intimately connected with the places that we are from. The places that we are from really shape who we are as people how we behave with each other, how we conduct our relationships to those places, but to other people around us and to our neighbours and our other communities, how we take care of the land, how we take care of the water and how we take care of ourselves. So while you've been living in British Columbia and exploring, what have you learned about the Indigenous communities that surround the Great Bear? A great question. Um, Probably only a fraction of what there is yet to learn, despite having been here for more than 20 years. But I think a couple of things really stand out about the Indigenous peoples in British Columbia that I'm so appreciative of finding out and learning more about. One I've already mentioned is just the great ways in which uh, Indigenous peoples have always managed and used their resources. And if you think about Indigenous peoples on the coast here and the places that they've been, and and there's incontrovertible evidence, both archaeological and oral history, showing they're in place for 14,000 years and more. These places have taught them how to manage and use the resources in those places most effectively over that time. You know, that's 700 generations of people learning from trial and error, from events like pandemics and tsunamis and ice ages and earthquakes and all these things that affect us. Climate change uh, is nothing new for these people. So they've learned how to manage resources with the land uh, and waters telling them how they need to behave to make them sustainable for future generations. So that forms how they shape their governance, how they shape their laws how they uh, relate to each other, as I said. What, who's responsible for what? How do you relate to the communities up and down the coast, depending on whether you live in a field, if you live in, on, in a mountain area, if you live on a delta, all those sort of things. So that is uh, an amazing journey, learning about those things. And the second thing I'd say that uh, really has hit home for me, particularly in the course of writing this book, and I'm so grateful for the generosity of the people who shared their stories and helped me understand this, If you think about that, if you think about 14,000 years and more of just this incredibly sophisticated and successful system of sustainable resource use and management, sustainable community living, and then you think about colonization, and everybody talked about the impacts of colonization upon them. You know, we're Mm -hmm. talking about the future, we're talking about sustaining a future for the future generations, but you can't set that table for the future until you clear it of the past. 
we tend to think, I'll speak for myself, we tend to think of colonization and its impacts in the last 400 years in terms of what, unfortunately, so many of us know all too well, uh, and residential schools and the taking away of land and the taking away of uh, ways of life and language, the loss of all of these things. And we've seen the impacts and we, we understand the impacts in that short-term window. But to truly understand those impacts, you actually have to set that against that 14,000 years of doing things the right way and doing things extremely well and how brilliant um, you know, the, the indigenous way of life was. And then you can return to those ways of doing things for the health and well-being, not just for themselves and their own community, but that's going to make British Columbia a better place for everybody. And this book really, uh, I hope, amplifies that theme and that concept and helps share a little bit of that understanding of my learning with, with readers. I feel like we could all learn a lot from looking back at how they rule, for lack of a better word, the land and how they were able to be so intertwined with how it works. Totally. And, you know, I think it's a theme that all Canadians can relate to. If you think about, you know, and I, again, speak for myself as, as a settler, you know, from another place. Many of us in Canada uh, have come from other places, have come from Europe, have come from Great Britain, have come from, you know, Asia, have come from all these other places where our own ancestry goes back thousands of years. And we've become disconnected from those places, but many of us have also really connected to being in British Columbia, to being in Canada. And we love this place and we love who it is, but we don't have that deep, intimate connection to our past. But I think if we allowed ourselves that um, that benefit of actually thinking about our own connection to the places that we might be originally from or our ancestors are from, they probably had really good systems of taking care of those places that go back thousands of years. And I think what I hope is that people can actually relate their own experience and their own history and culture to this and have a much better understanding of Indigenous peoples here and their connection to place and that we can all celebrate that because it, it really is such a, an amazing, beautiful concept. And honestly, today in this era of climate change and drought and wildfires, you know, finding and embracing these better systems of sustainable land and water management uh, it's it's essential, actually. It's not just uh, nice to do, it's a must-do. That's Catherine Palmer-Gordon, author of a book called This Place is Who We Are, speaking with our producer, Bianca Rego. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to update you on a story we talked about last week. You may remember we had Vancouver City Councillor from the Party One City, Christine Boyle, on the show. She wanted to talk about a motion that she had put forward at Vancouver City Council last week to extend the lease on temporary modular housing that are in several different locations here in the city of Vancouver. Well, the motion was shot down by the ABC majority on council. She was very upset about that. But before we get to the ABC response on this, first off, let's hear from Christine Boyle what she told us what this motion was all about. So the um, motion called for, like you said, called for us to renew the leases on existing temporary modular housing uh, for as long as we need it and until we have the senior government funding in place to build enough permanent uh, supportive housing. There are hundreds of units of temporary modular housing whose leases will come up during the term of this council and it is important, of course, I think it's important that we protect those good, dignified housing units uh, so that we don't see more people pushed into homelessness, more people sleeping in tents uh, and, and parks and on the streets. Okay, so she was pretty fired up about this and the fact that the motion got shot down. But of course, we also heard from the other side. And as always, there are multiple sides to a story, right? Our contributor, Scott Shantz, had a chance to speak with ABC Vancouver City Councilor Brian Montague to hear why that party decided to vote against this motion. Initially, when these units were put in, they were put in with the thought of, well, we, when the leases expire, we can just pick them up and, and move them and put them somewhere else. And what's happened is that it's, it's uh, been realized that that's just not feasible. It's cost prohibitive. Uh, it's way more expensive to do that. And land is at a premium in Vancouver. We're, we're, very, we're bound by the fact that we have very little land here to, to use, at least appropriate land. Um, so uh, the temporary modular uh, 
model, I just don't think works in the city. That being said, like I said, there are maybe specific individual cases where an extension of the lease could work. We have tried to, to move one at uh, 37th Avenue temporary module housing. They tried to, they, they you know, that was moved. Uh, again, it was extremely expensive and, and cost prohibitive. It was really not that feasible. Um, you know, when we first got elected, we actually did put in some temporary, we, we did approve some temporary housing on Western Avenue and on Ash Street. That is just coming into uh, into the system now. Um, uh, I believe uh, the one on Western is up and running, uh, and they're moving tenants in. Um, uh, and the one on Ash will be up and running to move residents in by the end of the month. So, you know, there is um, there is room for some temporary solutions, but we do want to move away from that. We want to move towards a more permanent solution. Okay, so that's ABC Councillor Brian Montague. Uh, now, Councillor Boyle, though, she made a pretty good point, right? If we don't have permanent housing yet, then why aren't we extending these leases? Overall, I'm concerned, though, that this sends a pretty terrible message to Vancouverites that we're not taking this crisis seriously. You know, I I hear all the time from Vancouverites all across the city who wanted a compassionate response to homelessness, who want to see people being able to move indoors so they're not sleeping outside. Um, And as Mayor Sim and and ABC led a decampment, um, you know, people want to see homes built uh, as the solution, supportive housing is the solution to homelessness. Um, As the mayor was shotgunning a beer on stage this past weekend, 3,000 Vancouverites were looking for a place to sleep, and the number keeps going up. So that's my concern. The the leases will come up for renewal over our term, and, uh, and we need to renew them. We need to protect more people from becoming homeless while we tackle all the issues in front of us and um, and we need a serious mayor willing to govern in order to do that job uh, and that's not what we're seeing so far. Alright, that's Councillor Christine Boyle. Now as you can imagine, the ABC Councillor is not very happy about some of those comments. So we asked Councillor Montague then what is ABC's long-term plan and what did he think about all that? There's there's a lot to, to take in here. I mean, it, it, at Council we receive many, many reports and briefings on this topic, uh, and it's complicated for sure. But, I, I, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there about about these temporary modular housing units in Vancouver, and I think one of the things we have to remember is that, and it's right in the name, that these are, were always designed to be temporary, uh, not permanent. The residents in these modular housing units that are where the lease is expiring, mm-hmm. uh, they're not going to be displaced. They're all being relocated by BC Housing. It's BC Housing's responsibility to make sure that no one is moved out of these out of these units until uh, they've found them uh, an appropriate place to live, uh, and that no development will take place until that happens. So I think that's really important. I want to be very clear. Uh, Mayor Sim and the ABC councillors have been dealing with many challenges since we were elected nine months ago. One of the challenges we've been very focused on is the city's housing crisis and homelessness. So the accusations that we're not taking housing crisis seriously, we're not governing seriously, I can only describe them as uh, obtuse and divisive. They're not grounded in reality, and they're clearly politically motivated. All right, so that is Councillor Brian Montague from ABC. And obviously, they wanted to respond to a lot of what Councillor Boyle had been saying there. So really, the question comes down to this. If that is the case, then, and there's a lot of ifs, right, that both sides are talking about here. What really is important is to know where will the people who rely on this modular housing go? And this is what Councillor Brian Montague had to say about that. Yeah, I don't have specifics on where each individual resident is has moved to, and, and they'd all be a little different, I would assume. Uh, BC Housing would, would be most appropriate to, to talk about that. But when it comes to these leases and the specific motion that was brought forward, it, it's tying up land that could be far better uh, utilized. Um, uh, and in some of these cases, you know, there's this, this perception, I think, that, that these leases are coming, they're, uh, they're coming up very shortly, and some are. But some of these leases actually don't expire until 2026 or 2028. Mm-hmm. And many of them, almost, I think actually most of them, um, have conditional 
options to renew until 2029 and 2031. So these leases aren't coming due tomorrow. Um, you know, there's still some of these uh, have the potential to be uh, to be used for for many many years to come. Um, I think a blanket policy to just renew all the leases. Uh, again, we're tie- we're just tying up land for something where we could actually build social and supportive housing, build more of it. All right, so that is Councillor Brian Montague from ABC giving us another side to that story. We certainly appreciate that. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth on this, but in the end, the, the question still hasn't been decided about what we're doing with this, right? Still not enough units for people in the city, but we're going to keep following that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, lines are back in action this week, and we're going to find out that they are ready to go. Rick Campbell's with us, head coach of the BC Lions. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you. How were your few days? I remember you telling us you were going to actually relax for a couple of days. Um, yeah, we do give the players a few days off and the, the coaches take a, a few less than that. But uh, we did take a couple of days to, to recharge, but we are back at it today, uh, meeting with the players and we'll have a, a practice and get back at it. What does that mean? So you, you want to get them back focused, right? Yeah, so we we actually have an extra day planned today just to make sure our minds are fully back on football and uh, play this Saturday at four against uh, Saskatchewan. So, yeah, we want to make sure we're 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 back into it and going, and we'll we'll do that this morning. Okay, so there were some interesting scores this past weekend, and I know you're playing Saskatchewan. They played this past weekend. You're going to meet them what three times this season? Yeah, yeah, the the CFL games were crazy this week, so uh, it's hard not to be a CFL fan if you watched any of those games, and including yeah. the Saskatchewan one. And they they had a, they had two punt returns for a touchdown, and it came down literally to the last play of the game. So uh, pretty exciting stuff. All right, so what do we know about Saskatchewan? Um, they're good. So their quarterback got hurt, which will be a topic of discussion, but. Uh, they have a guy that's been with them a few years, um, going to play for them, Mason Fine. And then they have a lot of really good players. Um, they're a good team. They have a winning record. And um, we're, we're starting a big stretch of the, the season. We play all four Western teams the next four weeks. So, uh, you know, start with Saskatchewan this week. Okay. And so do we have any injury concerns right now? We're looking pretty good. So, um, Did you knock wood? So, wood right now? I, yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, it's going it's going pretty well right now, and uh, we're definitely making an effort to keep our guys as healthy as we can keep them. All right. Well, looking forward to the game, Coach. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. See you. Ya. You too. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. So we're 4-1 right now, uh, heading into a game this weekend against Saskatchewan. That's the first of three regular season meetings. And yeah, knock wood on that front when it comes to keeping everybody healthy. We want to see that for sure. Uh, so BC Lions looking forward to that. And remember, you can catch those games, uh, listen to them on AM 730. Um, and you know what? We will talk to the coach every Monday morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it possible to crack down on impaired driving to make it easier on police so we can get more drunk drivers off the road? Well, technology might be able to help them do that. There is perhaps a different way than to use the what can be cumbersome kind of breathalyzer test for every single person. And yes, technology, different developers have been working on this. And we're going to learn about one of those techniques right now. Dr. Rahul Kushwa is with us now, a Chief Operating Officer and Director of Predict Medics at AI Incorporated. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Simi. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So what are you working on here when it comes to impaired driving? What do you think your company can do? So, well, uh, when I talk about Predict Medics AI, we are really a pioneer when it comes to contactless artificial intelligence solutions, whether it's for healthcare, workplace safety, or impairment. I mean, we're a public company trading on the CSC, and effectively what we have developed is more of a chat GPT when it comes to healthcare. Our technology looks like what you may come across in an office building or at an airport that screens you for presence of metals. But what our technology is identifying are uh, signs of impairment, whether you have consumed alcohol or cannabis, if you're fatigued. And at the same time, it's also identifying your vitals, such as heart rate, breathing rate, heart rate variability, and the list goes on and on and on. And what we have done is we are using computer vision, machine learning, and artificial intelligence to look at 
the blood flow patterns on the face to identify a lot of these vital parameters as well as a lot of these physiological conditions. And on top of it, our technology has been tried and tested at multiple global events like Formula One, Super Bowl, and has been uh, independently validated in clinical studies in different right. parts of the world. Okay, Rahul, I just want you to like explain it now to us in a way that is as simple as possible, is how this is going to make a difference for somebody if they get pulled, or f- pulled over for impaired driving. How would police use something like this? Okay, so normally um, the classical way of identifying impairment is using a breathalyzer, but breathalyzers do have a very high false positive rate. Our technology, the way how it can be used is um, we are basically deploying multispectral imaging and the AI algorithms are identifying those multispectral imaging signals from the face and correlating it to levels of consumption of alcohol or cannabis. But, but you just so said the word presumption. So where is the uh, sorry, proof? Sorry, consumption. Consumption. Oh, consumption. But where? So it's essentially assuming, though, right? Like it's not. Mm. Where is the evidence that this person has consumed? Okay, so basically, how we are identifying impairment is so. Let's say when you consume alcohol or cannabis, there are certain physiological changes that happen at the level of blood flow, and we are correlating those blood flow changes to the levels of alcohol or cannabis which has been consumed. And that's where the accuracy levels we are sitting at are above 90%, which is much higher compared to what you see with the breathalyzer. And again, talking about cannabis, for instance, there, I mean, even though there are cannabis breathalyzers that are there in development stages, the reality is the levels of cannabis or THC in the breath does not always correlate with impairment because THC has to cross the blood-brain barrier to cause impairment. Okay, so is that like a first step then? So you would use this and then perhaps police can say, okay, well, you, we definitely need to go investigate a little bit further. So this is more of a screening technology where, yes, step one, let's say you're screened and you're identified to be positive for it. Then, yes, there could be a secondary drug test to confirm, which can be the evidence to support if the person has consumed alcohol or drugs. Okay, so then where is this in use? So right now, um, our focus is actually on the Indian market due to the sheer size and scope. Again, we are talking about 1.4 billion people and over 69,000 hospitals. The focus area for us right now is more in the healthcare setting. Because when I was talking about this earlier, our technology can also identify things like heart rate, breathing rate, um, heart rate variability, blood pressure with some tremendous accuracy and basically all you're doing is you're coming and standing in front of the station and the technology is not even touching you and in a matter matter of seconds you actually get those outputs so over the past two years we have been setting up the uh, groundwork for implementation across india when it comes to healthcare. and right now we're in discussions with government agencies and large enterprises uh, particularly in the government segment for uh, adoption of our technology which is going to be more of a contactless ai screening for hospitals airports and public spaces okay so this would be a new area though that they would be using something like this wouldn't they absolutely because uh, again This is where um, the ROI um, is extremely strong because when you look at a market like India, I mean, they have around 64 doctors per 100,000 people and the global average is around 150. So when you're talking about a country with over a billion people, how many doctors are you going to train? And that's where our technology comes in because it ends up becoming that first top triage. You go into a hospital, the technology in real time can monitor all your vitals and they can integrate in the back end with whichever um, information management system is being used by the hospital. And now when, let's say, the same person goes into a different hospital, you have all these trends that physicians and clinicians can look at in real time and come up with diagnosis. Right. So, Because we know that in North America, there is a real push when it comes to impaired driving, right? We know that that's something that we work on. How robust is that in a country like India? Like, how, How concerned is the system there with impaired driving? So right now, when you look at major cities in India, um, I mean, what I've seen personally every time I've gone into the country is after 10 or 11 p.m., as you're driving, the cops are going to stop you and they'll make the driver undergo a breathalyzer test. So you're saying this is a growing concern there, too? Exactly, because if you look at the number of accidents, the number of fatalities that are happening in India because of impaired driving, I mean, it has gone through the roof. 
Okay, so Rahul, let me ask you this. So when you're developing, and we're seeing this everywhere with AI right now, right? Mm-hmm. And they're developing like groundbreaking you know, technologies and uses and all of that. How much do you emphasize also making sure that there are fail safes built in? You want to make sure that nobody is accused kind of unjustly. How much, how do you work that into your system? So there are multiple sides to it. First of all, I mean, the decision making has to be fully autonomous. It has to be evidence-based. There has to be, first of all, clinical data, especially with our application to support the efficacy of the solution. And that's where so far we have screened over 160,000 people all over the world. And that's why we have had those independent have been conducted by third party hospitals to validate our technology. On top of it, the other concern that comes into play with a technology like this is, is it like a big brother that's watching me all the time? Well, no, that's not the case. Because there are no images that are being taken. At the same time, all the computing is happening on the edge. Uh, So there is no um, data upload that is going into the cloud. So there isn't even a question of somebody going in, hacking, and getting access to the data. And that's how we have also made sure that we are abiding by all the uh, privacy-related rules that are in play, particularly in Europe, because that's where they're quite stringent about it, Mm -hmm. to make sure there are no issues around it. It's a whole new world out there. Alison, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's Dr. Rahul Kushwa, who's the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Predict Medics AI Incorporated. They are working on using artificial intelligence and algorithms to be more predictive when it comes to impaired driving. So essentially, they could screen a wider variety of people for impaired driving and then single out, okay, you need to, you need to be further tested, you need to be further tested. And I just, I just think, you know what? I don't know. And I know Europe has really strict privacy controls, but I feel like a lot of people in North America would be like, I'm not so sure how I feel about this. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. As part of our farming series, we are talking about stories, about farms, and about companies that are definitely made in BC. Here's a question for you. Do you know what paneer is? I mean, growing up, I sure did. But you know what? Not a lot of people outside the South Asian community did at that time. This is a very different situation today, and a lot of it has to do, actually, with our next guest. So as part of our series, we want to introduce you to companies that are local, homegrown, and successful. And boy, this next one sure fits the bill on that. Kirpreet Arneja is with us now. Now, the owner of Punjab Milk Foods Incorporated, but probably better known as Nanak Foods. Gurpreet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. It's a pleasure to be with you. How did Nanak Foods get started? Well... We started 25 years ago, and uh, we saw a niche in the market where I used to observe uh, families slaving over stoves and, and making Indian dairy products for their uh, for the meals, whether it's a regular meal, a daily meal, or a family event or a wedding. And uh, families would, would take almost a day or two days lead time to prepare the dairy ingredients such as paneer and and other ingredients for Ras Malai. And it, would, it, 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 it was painful to see spending so many hours. And, and so, you thought, so, yeah. we, can fix it. we can do this. Yeah. So we saw, thought, hey, there's an opportunity. So we said, okay, let's, uh, let's start manufacturing paneer. There was paneer available, but in very small quantities across the border, and, and, and consumers or people would have to travel across to pick up the paneer. So we thought we should make it local. And also all the, the small artisan um, uh, sweet shops would, uh, would, would, would find it very challenging to make the ingredients to make the sweets. So we, we wanted to make it easier and, and saw a business opportunity and hence we started out. Okay, you started out with like two employees and now you've got how many? Uh, we're 250. 250. And you make a lot of different products. Like, what has the growth been like for you? And how many different products do you make? Well, we've got a, a total uh, range of 200, uh, sorry, total range of 50 products. And, and, and this provides a huge assortment for all the consumers. So the people don't feel that they're missing out on any Indian products. So uh, they can buy anywhere from an ingredient such as paneer or or koa or, or or even dahi, which is Indian yogurt, up to the finished products such as rasmalai and appetizers and other desserts. So depending on what the needs are, it can be used as an ingredient and or a finished product. 
But what I also love about this, Gurpreet, is that what you've done is you've not just brought your products to people who are used to having paneer or know these products. Like, wouldn't you say that part of the appeal here has been that it's much more widespread than that? There's all sorts of people now who are trying these products. Yes, I mean, you're right. It's, um, it started out with being a very focused product in the in the Indian community or the South Asian community because paneer is a, is a delicacy and it's a core ingredient or a core product to make Indian vegetarian meals, not vegan, vegetarian meals. But since the popularity of Indian food and Indian restaurants and and people traveling the world and the globe and, and finding out and exploring all the products and the, uh, the Indian food, they have started exploring and started making uh, meals with paneer at home. Right. So now, because now I can find it at Costco, which shocked me the first time I saw it there. <laughs> Everybody wants this stuff. Yes, you're right. And Costco is, uh, is, is, a, is a great place to be. How important is it for your company then, Gurpreet, to be based here in BC? What kind of a difference has that made for you? Being based in BC was is advantageous in the sense we had access to milk, and that was the first uh, opportunity we had because Canada being supply managed, uh, it is hard to get milk on the west on the on the east coast because all the big dairy companies have got all the what we call as the quota. And hence, we had an opportunity in BC. We started out small from a 1,500-square-foot facility and started using 5,000 liters a day. And we've grown, and, and BC Milk Marketing Board has been very instrumental in helping us in getting the milk, which is the base product. So that helped us uh, getting access to the milk. And along with that, uh, the, other act, the other benefit was most of the products come from East Coast, so all the trucking routes come from East to West, and when they go back, they are looking for products to carry back, and hence that helped us ship the products to, to the East Coast and all across Canada. Interesting. Okay, so would you say everybody <clears throat> always complains about, you know, marketing and supply management and all of that, but in your case, it, it worked for you because you were out here in BC. That's true. So you said you started out using 5,000 liters of, of milk. What do you use now on average? Lots. <laughs> without, giving, without giving the competition, no way. A lot more than that, right? For sure. What is the dairy industry like? What's your relationship like with the dairy industry then here in BC? Our relationship is extremely, extremely strong with all the, all the associate uh, dairy producers and the BC Marketing Board and the Canadian Dairy Commission because we are very unique. We don't uh, compete in the same space as fluid milk or cultured products. And we create new and different products whilst expanding the use of dairy products locally and Canada-wide into different products uh, and into different uh, SKUs. So we not only produce and sell in Canada. We ship throughout the U.S. and in uh, certain parts of the different world. And we also supply to uh, our paneer as an ingredient for in-flight meals for a lot of airlines. So it's growing all the time, it sounds like. Yes, it is. It's, um, the consumers are getting aware of the product, and they are finding new recipes and uh, I always refer to it like Indian tofu. That's what I always call it. Even though it's not, it's not like vegan. It is. It's vegetarian. Yes, it is vegetarian. It's similar as tofu, but made with with dairy milk and and uh, tofu, as you know, is made with soya milk. And uh, some people are allergic to soya milk, and some are allergic to dairy. So. It's just more and more growth happening, and I feel like is is this industry growing in BC all the time? I'm not sure all the time, but yes, currently it is growing and uh, looks like it'll continue to grow with the influx of the population and the awareness of the Indian foods and the popularity of Indian foods uh, and the availability of Indian foods. And that's what's making it easier and more convenient for, uh, for people. How supportive is you know, the government in terms of the dairy industry and, and manufacturing food products here in, in B.C.? The government does support uh, to a certain amount, but I wish there was more support as compared to to uh, other uh, provinces such as Ontario or Quebec, which uh, which do provide extra support because there is a lot of lot of food manufacturing on the east coast, uh, but very limited on the west coast. Oh, so you say we have some work to do? <clears throat> yes, we do. 
Okay, so what do you want people to know about Nanak Foods, Kapreet? Well, Nanak Foods is is uh, it's a manufacturer of Indian dairy products, dairy-based products, appetizers, desserts, and uh, we make our products in a state-of-the-art, in a very hygienic format, and uh, we love our consumers, we love our uh, the feedback from the consumers, and we're always willing to hear and 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 understand what their future needs are so we can produce we can do we can we can do some r and d and produce the new products that are that our, our consumers are looking for. Well, if you need help with research uh, development people like a tester maybe, you could absolutely feel free to call me. You'll have to come to our office for it's the sensory right? value. Yes, it's sensory. <laughs> You'll have to come to our office for sensory evaluation every day. What a sensory evaluation! <laughs> you have to come test it, and then you have to figure out like, oh, maybe my palate is not the same as everybody else's. Is no, it- <laughs> no. You come taste the product, and then you fill out a full report, I a sensory eval- a sensory report with huh. all the explaining all the different. Uh, uh, flavors that you're getting and the rheological properties of the food and, and how you this. found it. I happen to be free in the afternoons. I can do this. Gurpreet, thank Done. you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with you. And best of luck. That's Gurpreet Arneja, owner of Punjab Milk Foods Incorporated. However, you'll know them best in your grocery store as Nanak Foods based right here in B.C.